just to appreciate that nothing happens overnight and nothing happens just by luck and no design or no aspiration or no hooks or blagging or failures, you know, failures are so important. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever everybody is. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human with another very special guest. I say every guest is special, but I think this guy is special, really special. We've just been riffing for 20 minutes on all manner manner of things. And I've learned along the way, we've laughed along the way, we've shared some real stuff along the way. So I'm guessing the next 45 minutes will include more of the same. So my guest is Blake Ezra. He's described as a, your vocation is a photographer, like my view is a photographer to the stars. You know, if you read his, go on his website, I think it's Blake Ezra Photography. Photography.com. Yeah, yeah. .com. Yeah. Check it out. It's an amazing site, amazing work. I mean, he's done, you know, the royal family and, and six prime ministers and all, all manner of amazing celebrity people. And we want to talk about that for sure and how he approaches his craft, because I think there's some real humanism in there that we we would benefit from understanding. But there's something that's happened more recently, which is him, in effect, getting on the speaking circuit, doing a show titled Human. It's just called yeah. Human, right? Just Human. And we, and we want to talk about that, you know, and how that came about and what exactly is it about that performance, I don't know if you'd want to call it a performance, <laughs> that is so mesmerizing to so many people. So, Blake, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So let me start with the uh, traditional softball question, but hopefully, you know, a good question. How did you get to where you are? How'd, you're, you're, you were self-taught as a photographer, is that right? As a photographer, yeah. My degree was, I mean, I've never studied a day of photography in my life still. Occasionally, you know, an online workshop, but I was, I was completely self-taught. And my, yeah, my degree was Middle Eastern studies. So um, I wasn't really picking up a camera at university, at school, and completely self-taught. And in terms of how I, how I found my way there. Well, gone. let me ask you a question. Were, <laughs> were you, I have been a hack amateur photographer off and on in my life. And, you know, to me, it is, it is fundamentally a creative proposition. So yep. were there other manifestations of your creativity as you grew up? Were you doing other kinds of creative things? So sure. Now I look back on it, you know, hindsight's this great 2020 vision of hindsight's amazing. Yeah, there were, and there always were different creative projects that I was doing. And actually I look back on it and I was, I was always the one with the camera out of all of my friends. So that was there in some okay. way. Okay. And, uh, you know, there were periods where I do a lot of, a lot of sketching and want to go into designing designing fashion and clothing. And I've always wanted to be a writer. I, I still, I mean, I, I write now. So there was always kind of little things, you okay. know, sitting with my grandma at her sewing machine, making clothes or whatever it might be. So okay. there was always something. And then I think photography kind of, you know, I didn't get into photography because I love photography and I'm still not necessarily into photography because I love photography. You know, I think we've even mentioned to each other before that that I see it really as a mechanism to, to tell stories and a mechanism to preserve moments. And, and it really is the mechanism, you know, and, and right. there are 
all manner of different photographers out there and all different parts of photography kind of do it for them. You know, if I open a new camera out of the box, a nice shiny new, whatever it might be, I don't necessarily get flutters of, wow, this new piece of technology is everything to me. You know, it's, it's, it's what it does and it's what it can give to people. And it's something that I'm still discovering and still completely in awe of the fact that it just what I happen to do professionally is creating something that preserves things way beyond any of our own shelf life, you know, um, to give things to people that, that, that are eternal. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, it, it triggers for me the idea that uh, I'm just making up this expression right now, but that the equipment is not the art. You know, and I'm reminded of years ago when I was in my 30s, I attempted to learn how to play golf because I was told that, you know, a, a young executive should play golf. And, you know, I had a, a, a bad set of an old set of clubs and I just wasn't very good. And, and ultimately, I convinced myself that new equipment, <laughs> new equipment would, would, make, <laughs> would make me a better golfer. And I, you know, I spent a thousand bucks on a set of whatever Callaway clubs. and Of course. You know, two years later, I was still just as bad as I was before. And the the point is, the <laughs> the mechanics of the thing don't enable the art or the outcome of the thing, right? Like, right, right. So you know, you need you need what you need to an extent. And there's a, I mean, I'm sitting now in my in my little studio, and and I say this, you know, I'm saying how it's just a mechanism, and and you know, I've got every lighting modifier humanly possible because there's still you know that that technical right. level, right? But you're right, absolutely to 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 tell a story, to preserve a moment, to give something to someone that they're going to love forever, to document history. I mean, those are the things that really kind of do it for me, not necessarily the the almost the more visual side of things, which is which is interesting. There's those two levels. But how I how I got into it was uh, I was enrolled to do accounting and finance at university because, you know, that's what you do. Yeah, you know, hoping to go on a gap year and come back to the UK and get a grad scheme or a grad job and have a relatively, I suppose you can call it, stable career. And I did a gap year. I was in I was in Jerusalem for much of my gap year and not meaning to delve too too deeply. But you know, we look at these pivotal moments of our life where things change. And sometimes we don't even realize that they're the moments where things change until afterwards and we look back. And the Saturday night in Jerusalem and I was out with some friends and in Jerusalem it's the the Shabbat, the day of rest on the Saturday. And then on the night everyone's everyone's out in the streets and bands and dancers and shops open until whatever time. And this was December 2001. And we were out together deciding whether to go for pizza that way or steak this way or, you know, a few indecisive teenagers standing there not being able to make a decision together. We decided pizza and we're about to head off in this direction. And as our feet started moving, there was a, a massive blast. And the ground shook and smoke came around the corner and rubble came around the corner, people oh screaming, sirens. And we were standing about 50, 60 meters away from a, from a Hamas suicide bomb which killed 11 people and oh injured God. 170, right? So the truth is, if we'd have been more decisive and moved quicker, we'd, we'd have been there. So it's weird when these had these, thing, these things happen and you know your feet take you towards an explosion. We got out of there as quick as possible. And five minutes later, a second explosion went off exactly in the spot that we'd been standing when the first one happened. And... You know, I I don't oh, think about this how on a daily old, how old basis. You were, you were nineteen. I was 18? I was eight. I was eighteen. I was eighteen. And uh, yeah, and I mean the, the eleven the eleven people who were killed were, were teenagers out for the evening eating pizza. And it's not something I think about every day. But you know, and I went on that gap year with this accounting and finance degree to come back to. By the time I got back from the gap year, I changed the degree to Middle Eastern studies. And I think it's one of those moments where you think, all right, if I'm going to do something with my life in a meaningful way, or if I'm going to spend 10, 15, 20, 30 years doing something professionally. It's got to be something at least with meaning to me. And I think that was 
one of those pivotal moments where that happened. And, you know, many other things on the way to, to where I am now. And lots of, you know, I call it blagging is the British word, but, you know, tenacity in terms of contacting lots of people, working for free, offering to carry bags, all those things. But I think that was a moment that was it was really important for me. And it's, it's, it's still it's still all about emotions, really, everything that I do and, and the writing and the photography and the speaking. And, and, and I think that's why, you know, we first connected with mm-hmm. me speaking about, about essentially the humanity behind what I do and you looking to insert more humanity into what everybody yeah. does. So it's, yeah. You know, I, I just want to comment on, on, on something. Well, it's actually two things. One is I, I had lost my father when I was 14 and then I lost my brother when I was 18 what I learned, one of the things I learned is that loss does create clarity. But I've also observed, not just among myself, but among many, that that clarity can be fleeting. Mm. That we can forget the clarity or the clarity can become diffuse over time. And that we need loss again or we need adversity again to remind us of our humanity or remind us of what matters or remind us to live our life fully. And what's what's interesting to me is that that experience for you at the ripe old age of 18, what I'm hearing is that it's it's stayed with you, that the clarity that you got then is still within you. And I think that's I think you're to be commended for for whatever reason, being capable of holding on to it, because the, the natural I think the natural way of most of us is to forget. Mm. And then it happens again. And like, oh, right. I should live my yeah. life or right. I should tell my loved one that I love them. All right. Right. I yeah, should yeah. hug my kids or, you know, and I think we you were talking earlier about, about COVID and it's created clarity, right? The adversity that For it sure. has presented has created clarity. And now you see in the, in the news or in the papers, you know, a lot of commentary about will the clarity last? Will the things that have been positive about COVID hold mm. or will once we return to the normal world, will we forget them all, you know? And then the second thing I want to say, what, what is it called? Blagging? Blagging, yeah. Okay. Blagging. <laughs> and so Using that, the maximum level of chutzpah and the minimum level of capability, know-how and professionalism to get to where you want to be. I think that's my new definition of blagging that I've just gave So just like brute <laughs> force, just go do whatever you can possibly do. It's inelegant. Right. It's without exactly. finesse. Exactly. Okay. Exactly I, that. Exactly. I love that word, and I will. I will <laughs> seek to blag in the future. Anyway, you should. So let's talk a little bit about. So when did you start? When did you realize you wanted to be a professional? I'm not even sure you re- you wanted to be a professional photographer. When did <laughs> When did you find yourself a professional photographer? So that there was there was I suppose not a, one moment of realizing, but during my degree when I was studying Middle Eastern politics and and all the craziness that goes on there, you know I was traveling a bit as well and. You know, there are some countries like, you know, where I live, it's cold and everyone's behind closed doors and everybody's very British and you don't see much outside of the house. But obviously there's some countries where, you know, the hotter weather and maybe the the hotter tempers of people, you know, you, you walk down the street and you can see these manifestations of politics and humanitarian issues and they're just there to be seen. And I think for me, it was a case of wanting to communicate those, whether it was with words or with pictures didn't really bother me at that point, or I was mm-hmm. equally into both. And you know, I met a few journalists along the way who just said, look, if you want to get into 
telling stories, forget one of those disciplines and embrace the other. Learn how to be good either at writing or at photography. And so I dropped I dropped the writing for a good 15 years until this year with the clarity of COVID. But it was over those few years at university. And I said that I wanted to be a news photographer. That was the thing that, that really did it for me, right? The ability to communicate a story to somebody in one single image, communicating it to millions of people. I thought that was just like mind blowing. So when university finished, I, I, I became a news photographer. And again, the blagging happened. And I uh, went to the Jerusalem Post and worked there for free for six months and had to, again, blag or had to convince my way into different places and football stadiums to cover football cup finals without the right accreditation because somebody had messed up the paperwork. And you know, all of this in a second language at, at that point, 23 or so years of age. And once I got back to the UK after that, I contacted I think three or 400 press photographers in the UK, basically all the press photographers in the UK who are registered on the, on the association website and just said to all of them, look, can I, can I carry your bags? Can I come and learn from you? Can I do anything? Just, I was, you know, putting it out there, reaching out. And a few of them were gracious enough to reply and say, actually, maybe try this agency or this agency or this contact. You know, within two weeks, I found myself as one of the youngest or maybe the youngest full-time press photographer in the UK. And I had no idea what I was doing with a camera. No, I literally no idea whatsoever. Did you have a portfolio? Even I had, like, did you have? I, I had something, right? It wasn't. I wouldn't say it was uh, particularly <laughs> impressive. You know, I was, I was all into having my pictures displayed in places. I mean, they weren't good pictures. I mean, that was the, the most remarkable thing about going to Jerusalem and, and being at the Jerusalem Post was, was you know, I said, look, wouldn't it be amazing if after six months I come back and, and I've got a picture published in this big established title that's world famous. And it turns out that I had pictures published every single day that I was there. And the most remarkable thing was not the pictures, it was the fact that they were published, you know. So there was a bit of a portfolio. And, yeah, within a couple of weeks of the contacting all of those press photographers, I was, I was full time and being sent off to cover stories as diverse as, you know, a micro hedgehog being the new pet that the celebrities want down to knocking on the door of families who had lost a son that morning in the war in Afghanistan and saying, do you want to pay a tribute to your son for the national newspapers? Do you want us to come into your home? And, you know, at a young age that taught me, I say young, relatively young, right? Early mm -hmm. mid twenties, but it taught me a lot. And for every one of those parents who'd lost a child that morning, who had me knocking on their door, who would say, look, get off my land. How dare you knock on the door? There were 10 who'd say, look, actually come in. I want to talk and, and this is going to be cathartic for me. And I want to pay a proper tribute to my loved one. And we'd sit there and drink tea and talk about their son who they'd lost three hours ago. And, okay, um, I, I, I love I love I love that, and a couple another couple of reactions. Once the once the latter is is when I see people who have lost people being interviewed. I, for me, it's like such a it's hard for me to get my head around the desire to do that. Yeah, but the way you just described it is actually helpful, which is it's a it's an opportunity to pay tribute. Mm. I just never thought of it that way. Yeah. So thank you. Well, I think, I, I think I, if it's a, sorry, go on. No, no. I was just always like scratch my head going, why, why would somebody why? want to be interviewed? Yeah. Well, I think in, in this context of it being like newsworthy or of it being, you know, I think whenever a, a national dies abroad in most countries or whether that's in, in war or not, you know, it, 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 something will go in the news about that happening. And, yeah. you know, I think if there's a choice of just having that person's name printed and nothing else, or having that person's name printed with a picture that their mother might love and some kind words from their family. Right. And, you know, a lot of people want to take that, want to take sure. that route. Right. And then the other, one of my uh, beliefs is that there are only two motivators of behavior change. 
mm. aspiration and desperation. And for the vast majority of people, the only one that really seems to work is desperation. And, you know, my example is I go, you know, I've been wanting to lose 10 pounds. I don't lose 10 pounds. I keep doing things the way I do them. And then I go to the doctor and the doctor says, Chris, if you don't lose 10 pounds, you're going to double the risk of a heart attack. And bingo, I lose 10 pounds. So when when you were sending out notes to 300 photographers, when you were doing everything that you were doing, when you were blagging your ass off, (laughs) I'm just curious. And maybe you can't remember, was that out of aspiration or out of desperation? I think there was a mix of both, for sure. I think there was, I don't consider myself to have have been really ever in a a truly desperate situation, which is, you know, a a real blessing for me. I'm very fortunate, as many people have. But there's always been options on the table. That's the truth of it. It wasn't a case of I need to get a job in news photography or I'm going to have nothing else to do or starve or, or okay, okay. whatever the whatever the, the doomsday might be. So I think a, a mix of both, a lot of aspiration more so, I'd say. And, and I think I'm glad to hear that because when I get a lot of people reaching out to me asking for help in changing the trajectory of something, mm. their career, their their relationship, their whatever, their whole life. And I end up sort of helping them focus in on the motivation because absent the motivation, you won't, you won't take the action. And so your story for me is affirmation that it doesn't always have to be pure desperation to cause Mm. the 10 pound loss, that there can be a a mix of those two things, you know, sort of coming together. For sure. For sure. Um, So, okay. So now we're, now you're a fucking professional photographer <laughs> and, you, <laughs> and you have no idea what you're doing. Right. <laughs> How did you do it? And, and what those, I'm really well, those, interested- those early days gone. Yeah, I'm, I'm more interested in like, it's like, maybe it's like, it's like in my writing, people ask me, how do you, how do you write? Some people think I write well, some people don't. <laughs> and people ask me, the people, some people ask me, how do you write so well? I'm like, I have no idea. I can't explain it. It just like sort of comes out of me. I don't really know. Like, do you, how do you do what you do? So weirdly, that's how I feel about writing in in, in myself. In photography, you know, it's a lot of self-learning and a lot of it. I mean, I feel really blessed that the first kind of job in photography I had was in news photography, something I don't do much anymore. My pictures are published widely still nowadays, but not, you know, I'm not taking them from news perspective necessarily. But I, I feel really, really fortunate about doing that because you get some photographers who, photograph events, for example. So I, I now, probably the majority of what I do now, I say now, I mean, last year, is is kind of private private events or, or state events or stuff like that. And I think for some photographers who are doing those, they, you know, they might be shooting once a week and that's fine. And that's, you know, that, that works for them. I think to be thrust into full-time salaries, news photography, where I had no control over my own life for five years or so. And you're doing three, four, five commissions every single day. And I'm just so grateful that I did that. And when I look back now, it was a mad experience and a mad existence. And I was out the house at whatever time every morning to drive for two hours to the office where my agency would be based. And then I could be driving anywhere within a two hour radius of that office, including back towards my own house. And the variety of what I was sent to do was amazing. So it could be that you're in a helicopter in the morning and then a, something with the queen at lunchtime and then a property supplement in the afternoon. And then there's a murder scene in the evening and just so many different stories, skills, experiences. And, you know, some of them I didn't do particularly well, for sure. And I know that and I can look back now and say that. And I was even sent to, I remember in the first week and a half of being in that job, I was sent to take portraits of a couple whose 
who had just lost, and I'm talking a lot about loss here, but who just lost their two-year-old daughter who choked at the nursery at the childcare that she was at. And they were being interviewed. They were being interviewed. And, and after the interview, it was up to me to take some portraits of this couple or for oh. the magazine. Was, and I, I did it terribly, really terribly. And I think I froze and I didn't know how to handle that situation particularly well. And they were, they were not printable images. They just weren't. Whatever the context, they just weren't. And I remember in the office the next day, my picture editor said to me, look, it's not, you know, I was off. It, it's not your fault. You shouldn't have been sent to this. You're one week in, you know, for the record, get the pictures before the interview. So there's maybe slightly less emotion at that point. And you did it afterwards, which I wasn't to know. But there were so many experiences that didn't go particularly well. That's the truth of it. Some funny ones, some less funny ones. But I think a lot of learning along the way. And I take that quite seriously, trying to better myself all the time. And I also think that, you know, human developments in my life in the last 10 years, having kids and experiencing things as a human being have immeasurably shaped everything that I do and how I do it. And now when I'm photographing events for families, whether they're famous people or not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there as, as me. I'm not there as a photographer, really. I'm there as a parent, as somebody who is so emotional that I'll cry behind the camera at a wedding ceremony more than the bride or groom might be crying. And, and I'm there as myself, you know, if I see a moment where there's a parent approaching a child in the room and, and, and I'm, you know, getting myself in position, anticipating that and happen to create a picture where one's kissing the other and it's, it's, it's gone in, in, in half a second. And that's all heart, really. You know, I think I spent many years getting used to this camera at the end of my hands and knowing how to use it. And then it is a mechanism. The rest of it is, is heart yeah. and soul. And I, I, hopefully that doesn't sound cliche, but it really, it really, really is. Well, I think... What's interesting, well, it's all interesting. What's profound about what you just said is one of yet, yet another Chris Colbert belief. To realize a life, you have to live it as one. And I think our society, you know, this modern civilization, whatever, has created a construct of there is my work over here and there is my me over here. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the nine to five industrial age stuff of I punch the clock at 9 a.m., I do my work, I leave at five, I go home, and that they're two separate worlds. Yes. I think we're only now just beginning to realize, partly fueled by technology and the integration of all this stuff and when does workday begin and it's always on, we're always on. Mm. And that's that can be both good and bad. But I think what you just are described is a oneness that, yeah. you know, you are your work. Your work is you, your parent, you know, parent, lover, husband, friend, all mm. the manifestations or facet of you are in one, one mm. creature. They're not separate entities, you know, they're not. Yeah. And I think which, what that shows to me, it all goes back to blagging. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Is there's a, there's a courage in that. I think to blag, you got to be courageous maybe stupid sure. courageous. But you're sure. basically putting your head down and saying, I'm going to suffer the the potential rejection of 300 photographers. Mm. I'm going to, I, I might get 300 no's. Yeah. That's courageous. Yeah. Right. And to, and I think to show up as a parent to, in order to film the queen, I don't know. I think that's courageous. Mm. I, you know, I think our, our human way is to like protect ourselves with various suits of armor to use a sort of British thing, yeah. you know, like we, and I did this for the first 40 years of my life. You know, I was this 
who very successful executive ran a big ad agency here in Boston. And I, every day, literally Blake, I would wake up in the morning, four 30, go for a run. And then I'd put on my little suit of armor, metaphorically speaking. Yeah. And I'd ride off on my white horse and I'd like slay the dragons of whatever. And then I'd ride home and I'd take off my suit of armor and I'd like drink a bottle of wine because I was fucking miserable. Yeah. And I think I think that's for for most people that what you've just described is is their reality. Obviously, the specifics are different, but but it really is. And, and, you know, you've you've undergone a path where you're now seeking a different direction. And it's a direction that that you love and where you can have that oneness about who you are and what you do and being yourself. And I think, you know, I've, I've done the same. And I think it's we're we're either the fortunate lucky ones or with the blessed ones or with the courageous ones or, or something in there is what we are because you know that whole saying of if you love what you do you never work a day in your life and and you know there's there's elements of truth to that for sure yeah i want mindful of the time i, I want to talk about the show so mm. um it was in january of this year right not not that yes long. yeah um, exactly. well actually a year ago january is like well <laughs> in covid time that's either <laughs> a long time ago or yesterday how did it like how did that happen so you're living your life, you're mm. traveling around the world, you're shooting, you know, celebrity people of every kind. Yeah. And then when somebody just said, Hey, you want to, you want to talk at a thing or. What? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so I also, I also spent years with it's, you know, that, that, what you described before about that, that oneness, I spent years trying, I think for some reason to not to reject that, but to maybe put on a slightly more of a professional front when I was photographing. So, and this is all, it's all very connected. So, you know, I do a lot of photography for various dignitaries or ambassadors or, you know, uh, taking control of photo shoots with prime ministers. And for a few years, I, I, you know, I got put a nose ring. I, I took it out and I dressed a little bit more normally. <laughs> you know, I, I dressed a bit more normally and professionally. And I did what my blessing, my grandpa would tell me, you know, make sure you're wearing a good suit. And I should still make sure I'm wearing a good suit. But I, I removed those elements of me, I think, and hid a little bit. And actually, those were great years of, of what you can look at as traditional growth for career and opportunities. And then I thought, well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be me. And during those years, I was asked a few times to to speak or to share stories. And I always said no. And I think firstly, because I still have imposter syndrome to a large degree and be that in photography or writing or speaking, where I think, okay, either I, you know, how, how do I take a picture? How do I string a sentence together? Or how do I share my story? You know, what the hell do I have to say that is interesting? There are unbelievably interesting people all around the entire world. What have I got? You know, I've not faced crazy struggle and I've not, you know, all this stuff. So there was, there was a lot of, I rejected these opportunities quite regularly. And then somebody asked me to speak at their community group, which is near here. And it's somebody I really love and somebody who has done a lot for me in the past and someone I'm close to. And I couldn't, I couldn't say no. So I typed out the whole email saying no and deleted it, said yes, hit send, and, and, and it was done. And, you know, there are about 100 people there, all very friendly audience. But I put time in and it was, it was a really interesting preparation because there was no real, you said right at the beginning of our, of our chat, we were talking about human and what the story was, what the message was that I wanted to portray. And the truth is, I'm not strategic enough to have had a message that I wanted to portray. I was asked to speak. I said yes. And then it got me thinking about what are the 10 or 15 or so most pivotal moments of my life, not my career, but my life. And, and you know, again, they're together. They're inextricably linked. And it's such an interesting thing to do academically. I'd say to anyone watching, if you've not done that, it doesn't matter if you're sharing it or not sharing it, go and do that. Think about those 10 oh, pivotal yeah. sliding doors moments. And they, they're not going to be the ones that you necessarily think they are. 
they're just not. And so I did that and that was the talk. And it was about those, as I say, 10 or so, and it went chronologically and it was just about telling stories and stories from my career and my life and, and what's changed my outlook and what really made an impact on me. And this one community group with about 100 people in the room went really nicely. And there was actually an ambassador on after me. It was, I felt like I was part of a proper lineup. And I said to myself, if this goes well, and if no one falls asleep, and if the feedback's good, and you know, then then I'll do it bigger. And so a couple of months later, it, I was on stage in front of 250 uh, in January, which was amazing. And again, I didn't even, you know, I'm not good with an elevator pitch, right? I'm not strategic enough to have that. So when people are like, what is it? You know, I, I don't even use the word show or one man show or performance. I kind of stutter around and say uh well it's kind of uh me on stage telling stories which sounds to me like one of the most you know boring evenings anyone could have but it turned into something that actually had a lot of lessons in there a lot of messages in there and and people getting in touch the day after offering me to speak on on, in in the more corporate world obviously that's not happened due to everything that's happened this year and messages from other people saying look you've inspired me to go and pick up the paints i've not touched for 20 years and inspired me to go and chase this and do that and and it was an amazing experience to do and it sold out again for june and got cancelled so we'll see when that happens we're gonna get you back on the back on the stage man that's uh i'd love to so so i have to ask and i apologize Mm. this is annoying but what are the messages? Or I know you don't have an elevator pitch, but like you said, the word inspire. You you know, so one one person you, you inspired to mm. go paint or do whatever. So for the sake benefit of the audience, like give us a handful of if you did the talk right now, what might some takeaways be from that? From what you have to share. That, so that, I think I, th- I think probably number one is that, and, and we should all remind ourselves that everybody has this kind of checkerboard of a story in their past. And everybody has a set of unique experiences that have led them to, to right now, to us two talking to one another. And sometimes we see surface and, and we don't look at depth, or maybe we don't have time to look at the depth or people don't share their depth. But it really turns out that for me, there have been this long and winding path to, to where I'm at. And a lot of people in the audience know me for the work that I've done. And it's amazing, actually, we also had a, a fashion designer in the audience who I studied when I was at school. My coursework was about this designer. And there she was in the front row, which was mind blowing. So oh, a lot of people is that <laughs> crazy, <laughs> crazy. crazy. And so a lot of people, you know, know me for that work that I've done, or they see the pictures going out from these luxury events or whatever it is. But you know, we've all got a long, a long story behind us. And I think that was that was number one, just to appreciate that nothing happens overnight and nothing happens just by luck and no design or no aspiration or no chutzpah or blagging or failures, you know, failures are so important. So I think that was, yeah, that would probably be the first lesson to come out. One thing in there, just I've been thinking a lot about lately, m- motivated by something I read is just, is how so much of our life is a collection. I mean, serendipity certainly plays a part, but mm. it's a collection of our decisions. And I go back to what, when you were in Jerusalem mm. and the indecision, right? Yeah. The indecision yeah. was critical in terms of the trajectory of the rest of your life. Right. Uh-huh. And I don't think we, I don't think we, we, we take stock enough in our past decisions, our present decisions and our future decisions. Mm. I, I think we, we, mm. we, we tend to sort of give them a cursory consideration when they are so foundational to the outcome of our lives. Anyway, sorry. Absolutely. Well, well, it's it's, it's finding that balance, I suppose, of pushing forward and looking back and and being aware of history and looking to the future. But you're 100% right. And this forced me to do that. And it's not something I'd done before, not in any kind of structured way, but it really did. And 
Yeah, as I say, look, it's difficult for me to summarize the other kind of, I suppose, the takeaway messages. But I think in every story that I've told, which, as I say, spanned the worlds of you know, childhood, pre-university, through university, just afterwards, getting into photography, becoming established, changing direction, and and some really interesting moments in that time, talking about, you know, a photo call with world leaders, where I was under very, very, very strict instructions not to speak to anybody. And there was a 30-second opportunity to get a certain picture, and it wasn't happening. And it wasn't happening well enough, and, and the room wasn't set up well enough. And, you know, I knew that that I'd be in trouble if I spoke out. And, the clock's ticking, the seconds are ticking down, any moment they're going to leave and walk out the room. And, and, and I spoke out and I put the camera down to my chest and, and addressed each of these world leaders individually with you know as much confidence as I could muster. But again, thinking back to those days of knocking on a door of a mother who's just lost her son two hours ago and knowing that actually if you ask anything nicely and in the right way and in the correct way at the time, the worst that can happen is they say no. That really is the worst. And you know, I wouldn't ask again and again and again, but Turns out that I spoke up and the world leaders came where I needed them to be. And, and the picture was 100 times better than it was. So I suppose there's also elements of bravery, decision making, how to how to mold certain situations to your own benefit. My own benefit only being what happens in the pictures to give to others. So it's not really my own benefit. It's a messenger for somebody else. And yeah, there was, there, there was a lot to unpack, to be honest. I spoke for a couple of hours. You know, what's the worst that can happen is to me like a corollary to the idea of well, what happened in Jerusalem? Like, I, I think we get really confused about what we're guaranteed in our lives and the consequence of our, the potential consequence of our actions and decisions in our lives. Yeah. And, and that causes, in a way, a form of, if not paralysis, a hesitance mm. to do things, say things that we want to do or say, right? Yeah. And if, yeah. If we could just sort of constantly remind ourselves, like life is not guaranteed. The worst that can happen is somebody says no. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I think we'd all be far freer. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, most human beings are risk averse and overly self-conscious. Right. And right. I think they're, they're the two, you know, I think if I know that people are watching me dance, well, I'll, I, I, I stop dancing maybe sometimes, you know, it's that, it's that, uh, it's perception as well, for sure. And, and I would add to that. I think we are, we are, we believe we're immortal mm. and we believe that a long life is guaranteed mm. and we operate as if that long life is infinite. Mm. But if it's like, if we could see the end of us, however short or long that period might be, it would, it would change the behavior of us because risk be, all of a sudden takes on a different, a different complexion, right? hundred percent. It takes me back to, and this is not something that I knew about before that, that evening in January, there was a, a friend of mine who happens to be a very esteemed rabbi who was introducing me on the evening. And I've done photography for him. And there's these moments of him with his own kids that are just, you know, eh, powerful, really powerful. And he actually said, he was talking about Nachmanides, who's a 13th century Spanish rabbi. And he said that the one thing that we all share and that we all know is that now never remains. Hmm. Things change quickly. And why this affects us so deeply, and it can affect us so deeply, is because we want things to remain the same. And because deep down, we all feel like we're supposed to be eternal and we're supposed to live forever. And he very cleverly then, of course, linked that to photography and making moments live forever. But you're absolutely right. And, and maybe there's that inherent feeling in all of us somewhere, even subconsciously, that then gives us those levels of kind of risk aversion and, and, and you know, self-consciousness. Right. Because we don't necessarily realize that things can be as transient as they can be, and they can move as quickly as they can be. And we need to, you know, 
be brave and be strong and be courageous and, and move in the direction that we want out of aspiration and not necessarily only when desperation hits us. Yeah. I think that's, it's like um, desperation yeah, totally. is a survival function and aspiration is a, it's not even a word, thrival. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the opposite <laughs> of survival, a thrival yeah. function. And you've clearly thrived. And, and I just commend you for that. And, 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 and I'm not talking about your commercial success. I'm talking about your human success of, of, of what you've learned. And I, I loved, I love something you said earlier about just every experience that you've had, including being a parent is informing every part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And some of that manifests itself in your photography. Some of that manifests itself on stage. I, I mean, it yeah. comes out in a bunch of different ways, Absolutely. but I think sort of a conscious, what I'm hearing is the importance of a, active consciousness about using experience to inform self. And and that, that sounds like, well, of course, but I know for a large chunk of my life, I wasn't doing that. I was, I was sequestering things. I was putting parent in that box and putting, you know, executive in that box and putting husband in that box, mm. not connecting dots, not using it all as a means to develop the whole entity. I was just, you yeah. know, I was trying, it was really a game of control, <laughs> not a game of, of development. So, so talk to me about, let's, let's sort of wrap it up on how you see your life coming out of this difficult period. We talked about this before we started the show. How has this period impacted you? How, how's the, the nine or 10 months of COVID mm. changed you or, or provided clarity to you? Like what, what's been its impact? So it's been it's it's been really interesting, and I said I've actually said to my wife for a few years. And this is something I've I've started to admit publicly. I've said for a few years that I'd love a couple of months off, a couple of months without lifting cameras, and a couple of months without everything that comes with that. Even though I love it, and even though you know it's what I do, mm-hmm. I didn't think those couple of months off would come like this, and I didn't mm-hmm. think those couple of months would turn into a longer time. But in mid March, at the beginning of the kind of first lockdown here. You know, I put my cameras away in my kit room and I locked the door and I didn't touch them for three months. And wow, yeah, I feel a little bit guilty for that because there were so many gorgeous moments of my own children playing in the garden and, and the paddling pool out and everything else. But that was what happened. And there's I was always, not, I didn't, Blake, I, there's always the iPhone. <laughs> and, and the iPhone came and <laughs> the iPhone was out a hundred percent. The best camera is the one you're carrying, right? right That's the right, way right, it works. Right. So I, I put the cameras away and I really, I really switched off and I actually even got in touch with all my clients for whom we're doing longer term projects or designing, you know, bespoke kind of albums and books from their events that we photographed. And I actually just said, look, we're, we're going to be homeschooling our kids. And I know everyone's now at home and now might be a good time for you to want to push forward with this project that we're doing with you or that project, but we're not going to. And actually I'm having a few months now where I need to focus on my own home and make sure that my kids are safe and well and learning and that we maintain a level of normality and happiness. And that needs to be my number one priority. Beyond that, you know, the kids normally being at school, I wouldn't have a second anyway. But I, I, I really, I got in touch with them and just, just said that and pushed everything back a little bit. And I think it was the best thing I could have done because now I'm, I, I feel more creative than I've ever felt, ever. I finally, after the 15 years of speaking to that journalist all that time ago who said, look, pick photography or writing. A couple of months ago, I, I wrote something about kind of the difficulty that the events industry is facing. And, you know, when read by however many people went around the world. And on the back of that, I said, look, I'm, I'm open to writing for others. And actually the last two or three months, I've been doing a lot of commission writing Good for other you. people. 
yeah, it's been a bit amazing, you know, biographies and, and business pages and all sorts of things. And it's been amazing to learn about different industries in that way through words. So doing a lot of writing, which I'm, again, thankful for this year for allowing me the time to push that forward. Made a studio. So I'm also looking a lot more at studio photography and portraiture and very, you know, creative celebrity portraits. And there's amazing pro uh, projects coming up and mm. finally, finally launched a YouTube channel because after years of hiding and people saying, actually, you need to be doing this and you should be doing this more. That's happening. So I feel like I'm creatively buzzing. You know, events have been taken away for that right. time. And there's been some, but I feel like, you know, you take one thing away and if you're, if you're inherently a creative person who needs a project, other things are going to come out. And it's really given me the time to focus on those other things. And even, you know, in recent times, just shooting in the studio with a collection of friends, be they makeup artists or stylists or people who I've worked with on events that now aren't happening. What you have is this community of creatives who are so desperate to be creative because their opportunities have been right. stripped back a little bit this year. So I think I'll come out of this professionally buzzing and wanting to do more and with more clarity about the direction that I want to go in and more more desire and more motivation crazily enough that's, yeah that's great it reminds me of a i wrote a piece right after COVID started titled mm. from pull to push and the whole idea is that when the world stopped all the pull or much of the pull disappeared and much mm. of our lives were were defined by the pull the transaction volume consumerism the seduction of the entertainment world whatever like yeah, so Our so. days were full of just responding to the pull. And then all of a sudden, choo, no mm. pull. And so my suggestion was it's an opportunity to create push where we yeah. are the source of our, we are the, we are the arbiters of what we do and don't do. We are the yeah. creators of our destiny. We, we have a blank piece of paper before us. And I, I, I sent it out on my, I have a blog and I sent it out. And what was remarkable, I got great feedback but I had some people contact me and say, how do I do it? I get what you're saying. Mm. How do I create push? Because the blank piece of paper scares me. I've never actually experienced this before. I've never not had pull. I've mm. never not been responding to the demands yeah. of the outside world. So how do I do it? Mm. And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah i mean generate generating your own momentum is, yeah is, is exactly no. like and, and and so not to put you on the spot but for those out there that are like mm, that's i love that like i want to do more of that and i have an inkling of what i might do but i'm hesitant to do it probably because we all suffer from imposter syndrome yeah any final words of advice on how to help people move forward in a more heartfelt authentic create creation forming way like any I, I just i think now i think now is the the absolute perfect time to push forward for, for a lot of people if they can to push forward with these things that they may want to do i think that i'm acutely aware i suppose inherently of moments and time and of time slipping away and of this year being that time that it's almost look, look for a lot of people have faced terrible times and tragedy and, and and you know that's happened of course but for others it's 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 an opportunity where that where those pulls are gone. And I think at some point those pulls will be back and they will be back maybe quite soon. And there'll be demands and, and the, you know demands on all of us. And I think firstly now is this, this golden period to push and to generate that push if you can. I think I've always been quite lucky in terms of having ideas and having things that I'd be happy doing. So I think for me, maybe that motivational factor is in is in the end goal of what I can see or in the creative project that I've wanted to do. So 
I think that's not necessarily as heartfelt as it as it could be, mm. but I think mm -hmm. that now now is a it's a golden time for everybody to push forward to collaborate with others. I think that's so important. You know, I think there were there was a time maybe as recently as two years ago that you know if someone as esteemed as yourself would have invited me on here, I, I would have said no and I would have hidden. Mm. And and I think we need to say yes to whatever whatever we can, not need and not not out of that desperation. But I think it's. You know, now there are so many people facing that and wanting to create to create that momentum that doing it together is an amazing way to do it. And and having conversations and working with others and bringing other people in. And yeah, I just I, I've never known a time like it. And actually, for me, even setting up this little studio here, you know, there's been people who I would never have dreamt of saying, can I come and collaborate with you? Massively successful people who, you know, want to come in and, and, and do what they love. And I think actually that that's a little niche as well. There's a lot of people out there who can't do what they love right now and who are doing other things and who are open to collaborating in all sorts of ways. So I think collaboration and just really knowing that this is a, a unique period in time. And whilst the pulls aren't there on all of us, now's the time to push. Once again, back to blagging. And to underscore, you know, my work in this insert human space has been mm. all about collaboration. You know, I, I do not have the capacity to the experience, the intellect, whatever, to realize the outcome that I'm trying to realize. It, it, it has to be done with other people. And I, I have been blessed and, and just shocked, frankly, at the willingness of brilliant people like yourself to participate in this undertaking from every walk of life, every, every part of the world. There are a lot of people out there that want to help other people. And I think I think that's the message to the audience is is the best way to help yourself is to is to become a blagger and in becoming a blagger, seek, seek the help of others, you know, like absolutely that's a, absolutely. a great a great wrap up. And like, thank you so much for being thank on the you. show. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to staying connected. And I'm sure one day we'll be sitting somewhere and and having more of this conversation in person. I'd I love that, Chris. To, Thank look, you so much. I look forward to a hug too. I, love, I think. I, yeah, I would really. I'm a big hugger. I'm a, I'm big, a big hugger. hugger. That's the challenge this year. <laughs> All right, man. I'll let you go. Thanks so much for being God on the bless. show. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Take care. Thank All right, you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful. You can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.